and good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. You know, the stuff we used to talk about at this time of night, it has literally taken over daytime. It's 24-7. If it's not bizarre antics of this administration or some other, if it's not a political campaign, if it's not bizarre people doing bizarre things, it's now the coronavirus. And as I said in the promo that I wrote tonight, um, this has more and more the flavor of one of those 1950s sci-fi movies where the whole world is in peril. I mean, if you go to theothersideofmidnight.com, that's our homepage, theothersideofmidnight.com, go there, click on tonight's banner, which says... Um, coronavirus, a literal end of the world conversation about pandemics and much, much more with uh, my friend and colleague, Robert Stanley. If you go there, click on that banner, that will take you to Robert's guest page. Let me just read you what I, what I wrote for tonight, because it kind of sets up what we're going to talk about. The end of the world as we know it. I mean, isn't there an old 1950s movie-type atmosphere developing around this whole coronavirus thing? In the last few years, we've been covering several serious global epidemics, H1N1, SARS, MERS, even Ebola. But I don't remember, and the Google machine didn't help much either, a worldwide anticipatory financial panic around any of these earlier breakdowns. I mean... With less than 100 cases domestically and only one death in a nation of more than 300 million people, such a rush and almost eagerness to plan for future nationwide quarantine zones or rationed shopping hours or even militarily restricted travel. Robert Stanley and I are going to discuss tonight that we're being prepared for something, but I'm not sure it's this. COVID-19 virus, and I've been saying this for some time on the air, that we're being diverted from some other things. First of all, just keep scrolling down a little bit till you get to my items and radio with pictures. This is an article, the first one, item number one, from The Atlantic uh, a few days ago. You're likely to get the coronavirus. Now, before everybody says that's a death sentence, remember, The the situation here is all in the numbers. The current fatality rate for people getting this virus is not evenly distributed across the board. It's overwhelmingly weighted for the very old, and we're not sure about the very young because we haven't seen any children coming down with this. I've seen no cases, no case studies, no reports of children, which is kind of curious. Um, But the Atlantic... uh, article quoting mainly a Harvard epidemiologist who said earlier in the week that something between 40 and 70 percent of the world's population are going to get this thing. The good news is that for most people, uh, it will be, you know, maybe a bad cold, maybe the flu, that kind of thing. For a very targeted population, namely seniors and those with respiratory um, uh, in, in incapacitations, 
this can be much more serious. Uh, but so far, there's only been one death here in the United States that was in Washington. <clears throat> Although now we seem to be uncovering more and more people who have contracted this thing through what they call community uh, transmission, which means they didn't go to China. They didn't get trapped on the Diamond Princess. They weren't in Italy or in Iran where there are clusters of these cases. So these people in Washington state, and I guess now in a couple of other states, um, they have uh, experienced this by picking it up from someone in the community. And someone in the community picked it up, well, we don't know how. And that's part of the problem of this amazingly easily transferable disease. In fact, I want to talk a bit to, with Robert about that because there's something almost too easy about how uh, easy this transmission is between, you know, person to person and surface to person, et cetera, et cetera. Item number two this evening in the news, uh, Pete Buttigieg has uh, quit the presidential race after South Carolina last night where he think, I think he came in fourth. Uh, he sees no clear path. So he has decided to um, retire from the field, and that will leave all his uh, potential voters uh, up for grabs in terms of who is going to get their votes in the coming Super Tuesday primaries, which, you know, governs like about a third of the delegates to the um, Democratic National Convention to be held later this summer will be picked up in the Super Tuesday sweep of what is it, 14 states, something like that? I mean, so it's a huge swath of states and over 1,300 delegates. So the fact that one less um, uh, candidate has, has retired from the field, Tom Steyer, uh, as you know, if you've been watching the news, quit last night. Um, Pete Buttigieg was headed for Houston because Texas is one of the states holding a primary where he may actually do quite well. And they were... I guess an hour or so en route when he made the decision to turn around and head to South Bend, Indiana. So that was a bit of drama at 30,000 feet. Anyway, um, just a kind of a reminder of what, quote, normal life when people are doing the normal things like thinking about the next presidential campaign, uh, what it kind of looks like. But closer to home, Robert has a whole series of things we're going to talk about tonight. Tonight is going to be kind of <clears throat> MAGA, anyone? 1950s sci-fi, science fiction, on television, in the films. Robert Stanley is the author of two groundbreaking books, Close Encounters on Capitol Hill and Covert Encounters in Washington, D.C. During his passionate pursuit of modern and ancient mysteries, Robert has traveled to some 58 countries in 57 years. His quest for unique ideas and information has led him to research and write about many controversial topics. I mean, tonight's one. His ongoing investigations have been featured in television, radio, print, and of course, the internet. Formerly a corporate journalist for Honda Research and Development, currently he is the host of the Unicus Radio Hour. Robert has served as a correspondent for America's Morning News and America's Radio News Network. He is currently employed as a corporate editor for International Social Compliance Service. And you can read the rest of it there on the other side of midnight. So, 
Robert, welcome back to the other side. Richard, thank you for having me. Well, I I wanted to talk to somebody who could think as crazily as I do at times. <laughs> I just get the feeling that we're living through some kind of drama, some kind of script. I mean, we've lived, as I said a moment ago, through these epidemics before. Yes. But I've never seen the globe before anything really has happened panicked and you know wall street fell for three days running down was it 2000 points or something on friday at close Mm -hmm. um everybody you know costco shelves are stripped bare people are stocking up on water and toilet paper and all that good stuff and nothing's really happened here so why are we being conditioned because that's what it feels like it feels like right. we're being conditioned, but for what? Right, and you had mentioned the what part of it to me the other day from your perspective. And it, um, I, look, I respect you, Richard. I know you know a lot about space and and um, um, the various things that go on there that are often not reported to us, or at least not accurately reported to us down here as the lowly uh, serfs. <laughs> so, so. But okay, so you know, you got me thinking. As always, you get me thinking about what is—is is there any indication that there may be something much, much larger going on? And just before the show, I was sitting there, like I'm always—I'm always doing research when I have a free moment, if there is such a thing, right? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to contemplate things and come to some conclusion, or at least what I consider to be a, a toehold on this um, this world. Now, um, you know, NASA is famous for never a straight answer. I mean, that's a, the joke acronym for NASA. And um, what had happened here uh, over Southern California, where I'm living now in Temecula Valley, which is just north of San Diego and just south of San Di- just south of Los Angeles, just so people get a kind of visual on where I'm at, um, that something fell out of the sky. And that was on January 29th in the evening. Hmm. And it caught a lot of people's attention. Not sure why, but um, so I thought for some reason I thought I would look that up to see if because at the time there wasn't any clear answer. There was people got some grainy video and whatever. But was this in Los Angeles? Like video of something coming in? It, it was all the way from Santa Barbara down to San Diego. People saw huh? something pass overhead and explode. Okay. And at the time I didn't see it. I was in the house. But I'll tell you what I did see was that there was. Um, uh, at some point in the in the after like eight o'clock, I didn't actually look at the clock, but I'm thinking it was around eight o'clock, between eight and ten o'clock. There were a massive amount of police helicopters flying around in every direction, which um, this is a very quiet neighborhood. It's one of the reasons we moved here. And um, the the they on one of the helicopters they were doing searchlights. Another one was actually uh, using a like a loudspeaker and saying, "Stay in your homes. Do not come outside." Really. Yes, honest to God, Richard, I wouldn't. And I thought, well, I thought they were looking for somebody. Did you tape this? No, because ah. I, they're saying to stay inside. Well, also, I don't, my, I don't think my camp, my phone would have caught it. And I didn't know what was going on. I just figured, you know, it was just annoying. Um, it was very loud, and and it was right over my my neighborhood, so I could hmm. see what was happening. But I just figured they're they're yelling at me to go in the house, so. Uh, probably going to do anyway that I stayed in, I saw what's going on through the window and stuff, but 
So I just looked it up just before the show, and this is what NASA said after reviewing the footage from various cameras because they tracked over a half a million pieces of space junk orbiting the Earth. Because that's what they originally said. They thought it was just junk, man-made junk falling out of space, right? Because mm. that happens a lot. But he said the next day they reviewed the footage. NASA found the answer. It was a piece of an asteroid, a piece of an asteroid burning up in the Earth's atmosphere. That's what people in Southern California saw. According to Bill Cook, head of NASA Meteoroid, Meteoroid Division. Now, I didn't even know they had one, but okay. And so um, why is that relevant? Because like I said, there was something huge going on over my, my neighborhood around the same time. I don't know if it's exactly the same time, but here's, what, here's where it gets even weirder. My mom lives in Ventura. She wrote me the day afterwards. She wrote me this text. She said um, that night – I saw the same five giant airplanes that held still in the sky for an hour. Now, I don't know what she means by the same ones, but, but obviously um, large airplanes don't hover. Right? No. No. She said, I, I, I know of only one case decades ago in New Hampshire in daytime where people were on a highway and they saw a, a World War II bomber. Oh. And it was and literally really slow. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't moving at all. It was oh. just sitting in the sky, with the props turning. They could see what? the props turning, but it was like a total fake. Oh. And I mean, this was back in the '60s or '70s, and I forget where I, you know, saw this. I used to live in New England, so of course I was right. intrigued with stuff that went on in New Hampshire. Um. Almost like it was a simulation where they deliberately dropped part of it to reveal that what you're seeing is not necessarily reality. Right. Almost like a big cosmic psych test or something. Okay. Well, in any case, as I said, my mom reported this was happening at night. There was five of these craft. She said they, they look like giant airplanes held still in the sky for an hour. That's a very long time. That's and I remember that when they were hovering, when the, when the helicopters were doing whatever they were doing, they did it for a long time. At some point I was, I was getting ready to call the police because I, was, I wanted to know what the hell is going on. Starting to get a little worried. Anyway, she said, I looked at the binoculars and the planes were not helicopters. The planes were very wide, had sparkly lights that some of them were used as searchlights part of the time. And they moved to the east, slightly over the general hospital. And then a long uh, line of police patrol cars with their lights on came up Hill Road and turned into the driveway for the coroner's building. There were about 30 police cars, double exclamation points on that. Mm. Uh, So... Whatever it was, see, I'm, like I should tell you, my mom lives up on a hill in Ventura, so she can see the the whole area all the way down to um, uh, Point Magoo. Right. So something something huge was happening that evening of January 29th in this region, and they managed to cover it up. That always amazes me because with so many phones and so many people just taking selfies and everything, I know. how can you cover something that's cosmic and Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people see simultaneously. Right. And okay, so the rest of the story from NASA is it was only, they, they're claiming it was only a couple inches wide, mm. the piece, the chunk that, that broke off the so called asteroid, and it exploded as it was coming into the atmosphere over Southern California and then landed out in the ocean. This is, that's their story at this point. I guess they're going to stick to it, but it's, it's pretty strange. You got it. 
admit, what are the odds that I was having, you know, that they were acting like it was um, like a, a military drill? It looked, it sounds like a search and retrieval. What was that? that. What was that? Project Snowflake or something years ago? There was supposed to be a, you know, black ops. Snowbird, I think it was. Yeah, Snowbird. The idea was you were going out and picking up UFOs. Mm -hmm. Like they're falling out of the sky left and right. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Another thing that doesn't fit. Yeah. Well, in in any case, I just. Yeah, Keith just typed Snowbird. Yeah, thank you. It was. Okay. So anyway, I it made this made me think of what you had said to me off the air that maybe they're preparing us for something larger. Well, the idea that they're bringing up military controlled access and travel. Mm-hmm. You know, show me your papers. Mhm. I mean, it sounds to me like we're looking at a worldwide lockdown with people eager to comply because they don't want to get this thing. And so you have a compliant population who are given a cover story for why they should freak out, but it's not the real reason they should freak out. No, but at least that's, that's the, that's the feeling I'm, I'm getting from watching elements, almost like a stage play. mm -hmm. And you'd said that this was, they they were forcing us to prepare for something else. And it's true that a lot of people who have never even considered about, Stocking up for provisions, preparing for being a lockdown. Lock, what do they call a lockdown? Yeah, lockdown, shelter in place. That's that's yeah. the terminology. Um, people, especially in America, would don't go for that unless it's it's absolutely necessary. And of course, if what if your scenario is correct, that there's something coming that could strike the planet. <laughs> then no, 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 no. I know I did, didn't. Did I say anything like that? No. You were intimating it, Richard. I can read between your lines. No, 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 no. I'm not intimating okay, at yeah. all. If okay. something's going to happen, it's somebody showing up. Because that's no, what you, they're you, afraid of. Remember, Oumuamua. Oh, yeah. You know. yeah, yeah, yeah. But you'd also said, look, the way you were positioning it to me was iridium and the and the dinosaurs. Oh, and that was an analogy. Okay, in, okay. in other words, right. if you are in a situation where you think you're under attack, you're being invaded by yeah. interstellar invaders, let's hit it on the head. Okay. And you want everybody to obey orders, but you don't want to tell them what you're really afraid of. This is the great way to do this. Okay. I'm sorry. I misunderstood what you were saying. And the the iridium thing was when you want your own communications. Mm -hmm. The thing about iridium and now the new thing about Musk Starlink, Mm -hmm. they're planning to put up so many satellites – yeah, 20,000. In low Earth orbit, that nobody could take them all out, meaning you have point-to-point communications when you need it most, when you're being invaded by your nearest interstellar neighbor. Okay. I'm being a little facetious. Yeah, but okay, except – and I forget the exact ter- name or term that they, they call this, but if, if enough of the – the objects orbiting in space mm-hmm. uh, become shrapnel. If, if you, let's say, you blow up a satellite, those pieces now exponentially can hit other objects and, and ca- cause a cascading effect. Well, yes and no. Keep in mind okay. where they are. Well, they're at different orbits, right? I mean, no, 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 no. They're all just hugging the atmosphere. These are really. Are? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. And they require station keeping, which means if one of them is blown up, 
the shrapnel will quickly enter the atmosphere. It will. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not like the Chinese fire drill where they blew up a satellite twenty some thousand miles out, and of course nothing comes down from there right. for a very long time. No, okay. this stuff. That's one of the advantages that I think Musk talked about. These things are kind of self-selecting. Mm-hmm. So when one goes dark, you know, electronic failure, that kind of thing, it will relatively quickly remove itself from the network automatically. By dropping into the atmosphere? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, they're only 150 miles up or something like that. I mean, the, the lifetime of an object of that altitude is only weeks. Really? Mm-hmm. Go oh, back damn, to your. That seems pretty expensive to do then. Well, no, 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 no. The active network is active as long as they have fuel. Okay. See, they they have fuel for um, self oh, on board. Lose their, oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Once they lose their propulsion, then exactly. Oh, that's exactly. different. Yeah. Oh wow. So there's attrition. That's why you need so many because mm-hmm. you know, depending upon the odds, the randomization of failure certain percentage are not going to work or something on them is not going to work. And they can't be fixed because you can't visit them with a screwdriver. Yeah. Do you know if they are, if they are hardened to EMP? Mm, do not know. I, you know, remember that's a relative term, Yeah. you know, cause you know, if you blow up like starfish, nothing can survive a nuclear weapon a few miles away. True. So you're basically looking at hardening against natural events. Yeah, I was thinking more like yeah, coronal mass ejection mm-hmm. at some point. Yeah, but see, they're so deep under the Earth's magnetic field that that provides most of the protection. Oh, and then the atmosphere above them, because they really are swimming at the outer edges of the mesosphere, so mm-hmm. that takes out more of these particles. So I don't know whether they would need much hardening because they're really in a very, you know, benign position in in space for communication unless something huge happens. I see. Okay. Well, now I'm even more intrigued because you are you saying you you feel that there is a potential threat of invasion? No, 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 no. We're talking perception. Oh, the perception. Remember okay. the in crowd, the guys that run mm-hmm. the planet. Any change in their status is going to be a demotion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, where can you go from running the planet? Right. Which means if you introduce an X factor. Another authority focus, like right. ETs would be, why? Because they have bigger guns and they have phasers, that kind of thing. Yeah. Then it's a standoff between your political people here, the governments of the world, and whatever political pronouncements are going to be made by the folks that show up. Our guys' posture is they are hostile. It's almost built into the furniture. They have to assume that. Because no matter what they do, even if they don't do anything, power will shift from terrestrial sources to them automatically. I think think you use the analogy when you're a carpenter, everything looks like a nail. Okay. So so when NASA, you know, named the first interstellar visitor a muamua Mm -hmm. and then told everybody that it was, uh, you know, a a scout, you know. Mm -hmm. When Keith Laney looked it up in the handy-dandy Google Hawaiian Dictionary, he found that Amuamua means battle scout of a war party. 
which means the in crowd looked at Oumuamua as a reconnaissance effort by folks who do not have their best interests in mind. Mm -hmm. So their posture is that any change in that realm, I mean, look at the whole Space Force. Why the hell is Donald ginning up a Space Force, which now has problems of names for the troopers, and what kind of uniform are they going to wear? Unless we're on the eve of our guys thinking that who's coming to dinner is an invader. Yeah, well, you have to always demonize the so-called enemy. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it isn't going to work out too well. The other element to throw into the mix here is, and I I keep wondering about this, I don't think this, whatever happened, got away from the level four lab at Wuhan from the Chinese. I think it was liberated from that lab, released deliberately by agents, by, by, you know, CIA, whatever. And right. the reason, well, the reason, may be a message, because the very name of the class of virus this belongs to, mm-hmm. coronavirus. Where have the Chinese been recently? The dark side of the moon. Well, the far side. Okay. And sorry, what have they right. been doing? Um, experiments on growing something, I think. Well, no, no, no. I'm not talking the cover story. I'm talking about what are they really doing. Oh, what are they really doing? They were investigating the remains of an ancient extraterrestrial civilization right next door on the far side of the moon. Okay. And they've been teasing our guys with imagery, which they've now really degraded, as well as snippets of between-the-lines kind of press releases. Mm -hmm. And the other day they found... There's something bizarre about the landing site that doesn't conform to Chang 3 that landed on the front side of the moon in Mari Imbrium. And they've got radar now going, you know, 50, 60 feet down, and they can't make any sense of it. They say they're seeing things that make no sense. Mm-hmm. Well, if you land on the remains of an ancient ET civilization, <laughs> maybe the radar returns would not make any sense right see mm-hmm. but on the wake of that because they've been doing this for a year on the far side of the moon suddenly really that long already? oh yeah yeah it was january of last year oh wow when they went december actually so they've been there a year and we've had a few photographs we've had some reports but no really daily we really don't know what they've been doing mm-hmm. except on the horizon shots you can see these stunning glass ruins extending above the horizon, just like on the Apollo photography, on the Chang 3 photography, on the Japanese um, Selene photography from orbit. In other words, it's all there, and they're the only ones currently investigating. And then suddenly they get a virus. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there could be a connection. Hmm. Well, you're the master when it comes to t- connecting the dots, Richard. Well, I don't know the but, master part, but I do what, kind of go in for dots. And I'm yeah. just looking at this because the numbers don't make any sense. 
Yes. It's like, you know, we're looking at something which is much more uh, of a diversionary character, I think, than of an actual threat. Because if we're looking at a threat, the threat is something that no one on this planet for, for hundreds of years, if not thousands, have faced before. Tell you what, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Robert Stanley, and we're talking about the end of the world, at least maybe as we know it. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, the 1st of March. My God, the 1st of March already. My guest this morning is Robert Stanley. We're discussing the end of the world. I mean, if you're if you're a member of the elite and the old family shows up, kind of like that scene in the original Star Trek, remember, a piece of the action Robert? Yo, I, I'm sorry. I thought you were. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me what it was. I forget <laughs> that episode. That's the one where they find and they 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 find alien characters like Oxmix and a couple of others, and it's because a previous expedition the Federation had left the book in their possession, and they modeled their society after what was in the book, which is obviously a novel. And it was all about the 1930s gangsters in Chicago. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, that was so funny. Oh, it's a hysterical episode. Wonderful with, you know, Spock trying to drive a model, you know, T or something. And, yeah, and they had the machine guns and stuff. Yeah, really yeah, yeah, funny. yeah. Uh, machine Gun Kelly and all that. Anyway, it was it was all about the model of a gangster kind of civilization adopted from upstairs, from folks that had visited this planet a long time before. 
And it was very entertainingly done. Well, suppose this situation is kind of analogous. Uh-huh. The, the 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 guys who own the planet, remember uh, what's his name, uh, Charles Fort, mm-hmm. and he said we are property. He, yes, he did. Yep. Suppose the we guys were, that own it the appears planet were someone's property. Yes, suppose, he didn't say who. Yeah. Suppose the guys that own the planet. Well, in my model, it's us. You know, it's human beings. It's members of the family. It's kind of like a an extended you know crime family. Uh, and when you look yeah. around the earth, you know, who would be running? What's down here but a crime family, all right? I mean, come on. <laughs> just, just look. Well, okay, that's brutally honest, yes. So suppose the owners show up for their piece of the action, which was well, the name of this Star Trek episode. How would the current guys, Trump et al., how would they yeah. react? <laughs> they um, would not be happy. Uh, They'd you know, be very unhappy campers. Well, yeah, considering you know some of the information that I forwarded to you, because I'd like to exchange emails with you when we have time, is uh, that the global debt, and I can't seem to get an accurate figure on it. I know it fluctuates, but I think the the highest number I saw was over two hundred trillion dollars. That the entire planet is in debt. Mm-hmm. So I naturally have to ask, how did to that whom? happen? Yeah, exactly. To whom? For what? <laughs> Well, we owe a piece of the action to them. That's a big piece, yeah. Yeah. But in astronomical terms, I guess it's really not. That that actually kind of makes sense. Well, think of it this way. Um, Richard Dolan, who I would love to get on this show because he came up with a really remarkable hypothesis, but he keeps avoiding me. Okay. Doesn't want to come on the show to talk about, you know, the breakaway civilization hypothesis. Yeah. If he's accurate, <clears throat> if he put together history the right way. And at the end of World War II, there was a twinning. There was a split between terrestrial civilization and what's been going on upstairs, kind of like the old 800-pound gorilla joke. Mm -hmm. You know the one, right? Well, tell it it to me anyway. Mm -hmm. Okay, where does an 800-pound gorilla sleep? Anywhere he wants to. Exactly. Yeah, okay. So if you're a breakaway civilization and you have torsion field physics – and you've got the real technology, <clears throat> then no. you can live anywhere in the solar system you want to. Now, right. it doesn't mean that you don't like to hang out on Earth, because Earth is the only place that you can hang out naturally and enjoy it. But with enough technology, meaning energy, resources, and information, you can live anywhere. Right. So these guys, who ostensibly left the planet, according to the Dolan model, mm-hmm. <clears throat> 70 or some years ago at the end of the war, They've been living in the ruins on the moon or sprucing up the old homestead on Mars mm-hmm. or dusting off the furniture on Europa. Or, in other words, we have yeah. an entire solar system filled with ancient, achingly high-tech artifacts left from an era when an awful lot of people died. Right, and that's why you're saying that the physics is broken. Well, that's another whole you know, conversation. The point is that if folks from beyond the solar system <clears throat> came back to collect their cut, yeah. and I'm using very deliberate terms that are much more finessed and elegant in the real model. In other words, if someone owns a planet, if yeah. we're literally owned by somebody, what do they want? 
what's well, the what's think- the point? What was the objective? What what does ownership convey to them who have everything? I mean, um, literally I thought, have everything. When you say when you say this, I don't. I, I I'm kind of flashing on the whole idea of a monarchy. Then mm-hmm. we're subjects. It's not debatable. It's not a democratic anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Yeah. That's that's what keeps flashing in my head because the gods. So so as we called our ancestors called them that uh, always demanded um, tribute or worship, meaning to work. We we were supposed to work for them just like everybody that's part subject of the empire mm-hmm. has to participate in contributing to the monarchy. And, of course, things like warp drive and interstellar wormholes and any kind of torsion physics or repulsion would allow such an interstellar empire to physically, practically exist. I mean, you can't do it with rockets. The only way that works is if you literally have FTL, faster than light, Mm -hmm. and this spiral arm of the galaxy is home to a lot of different cultures, maybe under one umbrella, maybe not. In other words, we don't really know what the politics out there really are, except if you go back and look at myths and legends, there's some deep connection between us, as uh, Rita was saying last night, our Mm -hmm. myths, our legends, our mercurial, hazy, dim, distant past, and what's going on with us right now tonight. Yeah, and, and also the fact, I think, I don't know who you were talking to about burning of the libraries. In Central America and also, you know, Alexandria and else in China, it's like you know, it's, they deliberately want us to remain ignorant mm-hmm. of our past. Uh, it's a lot easier to control us, I believe. Which means any outside folks showing up represent a huge problem for these owners on Earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shall we say um, landlords? All right. <laughs> God. And if the real guys show up our guys are going to think of it as a threat. Right. And I think two objects, two artifacts have shown up. Again, this is not debatable. This is real okay. physics. Two interstellar visitors, one year apart, when nothing like that has ever been seen in the history of science and astronomy going back thousands of years, as as what's-her-name, Hura said in Star Trek on another episode – it begs the percentages, hmm. meaning it can't be accidental that these two things have happened one after the other within right. two years. And it can't be accidental that both of them, their trajectories were marked over and over and over again with 19.5 uh, signatures. The numbers carefully modeled so that those numbers kept coming up. But they also seem to pace terrestrial Events like Nancy and company and Trump and company and even, you know, the president of China are doing all these things to some higher level interstellar script where they have to touch their marks at the right time as marked by this interstellar second visitor, Borisov, uh, over the last few months. Okay, so. Since you're bringing this up, what is this object they're saying is a mini moon that is orbiting? Ah, now that's another little thing thrown into the mix. A few days ago, a group of astronomers out of, I believe, a Canadian observatory 
have been reporting that they have spotted by using one of the largest telescopes on the planet and taking long exposure photographs. They spotted a little point of light that's in orbit around the Earth that appears to be a distant natural satellite, a mini-moon, which has only come into Earth's orbit in the interplay of the gravitational fields of the Earth and the moon, you know, the, the original big moon, for, they estimate now, the last three years. And according to their celestial mechanics, which are based on the imagery, which give you the trajectory and orbits, um, this object is going to leave the Earth-Moon system again in a few months, which means it's a temporarily captured visitor, which, of course, raises the question, temporarily captured from where? I had never heard of such a thing. That doesn't really make sense to me. I'm not a physicist, but that just, I don't, is that even possible? Richard? Yeah, yeah, of course it is. You know why? <clears throat> no. You can, if you have two objects in space and they pass each other, mm-hmm. they one can't get captured by the other. I see. In order for capture to occur, there has to be a third object in the mix orbiting in the vicinity somehow. And it's the gravitational exchange of energy between the three objects that can wind up with one, if it's very small and has no mass, comparatively mm-hmm. speaking, being temporarily captured by the other two. And we've seen this over the years, you know, when when Apollo sent spacecraft to the moon and landed American astronauts, the third stage of some of the earlier missions was sent on a directed course past the moon into interplanetary space to take up residence as one of the myriad of small objects orbiting the sun that we never get to see close up, okay? All right. And a few years ago, maybe a couple of years ago, one of those from Apollo 12, which, as you know, was the second Apollo mission to the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, in the later missions, they wound up crashing the S-4B stage into the moon to generate seismic moonquakes to mm-hmm. be picked up by the seismometers <clears throat> that the earlier crews had, had left on the moon. But for the early missions, there was nothing there to hear it. So why would you crash uh, a rocket onto the moon if there would be no benefit? So right. they let them, you know, kind of depart around the left-hand side of the moon and go into solar orbit. Well, a couple of years ago, one of those objects, it looked to be the uh, fourth stage of the of the Apollo 12 mission, called an S4B, came back and temporarily hung out uh, in an extended orbit around the Earth-Moon system until the combination of the gravity of the Earth-Moon and the Sun ejected it once again, and it's now somewhere, you know, between Earth and uh, Venus. So hmm. this, uh, that's what I think this thing is. Okay. I just find it interesting that suddenly it's being hyped in yes. the same time frame right. as these other very unusual end-of-the-world class events are taking place. Hmm. Yeah, it got it got a lot of uh, press. Yeah, that's I, for sure. Well, Clyde Lewis called me. He wanted me to come on the show, and as you know, I wasn't feeling too well last weekend, so I right. quietly demurred. You know, I'll mm-hmm. do his show in the future at some point. But everybody wanted to talk about this, and yet <laughs> not it's not really anything to talk about. Now, what would well, be interesting is if we could send a spacecraft 
that could literally go and hover and rendezvous and see what this thing is? I mean, what if it isn't one of our recent spacecraft, but a much more ancient spacecraft left from a previous high-tech solar system civilization? Yeah, you mean like the alleged Black Knight satellite? Exactly. Exactly. God. And the Black Knight was not alleged. It was reported for years. It just well, yeah, kind of I, it just kind of went away. There's it, no closure. But officially, it doesn't exist, right? I mean, NASA never, the government has never acknowledged it, really. There's newspaper they? headlines from the 1950s and 60s talking about it. Okay, but all right, then they're ignoring it. They're ignoring it. Yes, they're just ignoring it. Because back in those it. days, space was exciting to everybody, mm-hmm. and everybody had a telescope. I mean, I remember seeing Sputnik one with a pair of binoculars standing on a neighbor's lawn up in the foothills up by the president's retreat at Catoctin Furnace. 1957. Fall of 57. Yeah. An amazing time to be alive. Yeah. It's a little before my time, but I'm sure it was. But the, the pictures, I guess when I say alleged, I mean the pictures that are on the internet now. Oh, the pictures okay. are not real. No, no, no. no. That's oh, all okay. fake. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I no. Thought. no, the pictures are fake. The story is real, and what they've done is to assume the memory hole. People have very short memories, and no one really checks. So you're writing a story about a mysterious spacecraft that's in Earth orbit yep. that's not from Earth. We need a picture for plate one, that kind of thing. Oh. So someone goes and grabs a shot, and it becomes kind of the stand-in for the photograph we don't have. Uh, I got gotcha. you. Editors. Yeah, blame the sense. editors. Yeah, NASA does that all the time. They never show us in the real stuff. They show us like a graphic or artist rendition. Well, not all the time, usually, you know. Usually, though, usually. I mean, we don't have images of extraterrestrial planets, so they got to use artist concepts there. Yeah. Um, but everywhere in the solar system where we send spacecraft, we have really amazing images. Hey, so I never did ask you, but it's really kind of in the back of my mind. I've always wondered, what do you think Lilith is that dark cloud or that cloud of debris that orbits the Earth? Mm, are we talking at one of the L positions? L1, L2? Uh, probably, but it's called, it is called Lilith. I mean, I'd never heard the name attached to it. Oh, okay. I know back in the 60s there were efforts by some astronomers, particularly when the uh, 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 Baker Nun cameras, which were these huge telescopic cameras set up by Harvard around the world to track the early satellites optically mm-hmm. before radio. Um, they were using them. One team was using them. don't know whether it was Heineck or not to look at the L1 and L2 points, or maybe it was three, three and four. I'm sorry, three and four. They're the ones that lead and, and follow the earth's, uh, the, the, the earth's moon six degrees ahead and six degrees behind are called the one of five Lagrange points in a two-body system where two objects orbit each other. And mm-hmm. they, they were looking with these cameras, taking long exposure photographs, because they were very fast, very big cameras designed to spot a faint speck of light, an artificial satellite <clears throat> moving against a star field, you know, in the sky at night, right? So they were well adapted to taking photographs of what was assumed might be a cloud of accumulated cosmic debris 
in the L3, L4, or L5 positions. Yeah, it kind of uh, makes sense. When you say L, for people who don't know, you're talking about Lagrange zones. Exactly, yes. If something gets there, it's basically like a parking space. It's because gravity, it's a not... three-body thing. You can trap oh, an object with... okay. You, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah I never heard that before. What? Yeah, that makes sense. What's the three-body trapping problem? No, no, you just I, – yeah, I never heard it before until you explained it to me, but now I, get, I can visualize it in my mind why that uh, the Lagrange zones even exist, yeah. Yeah, think of them as kind of cosmic Sargasso Seas. Mm-hmm. which is another arcane reference that many people may not be familiar with. That's supposed to be the gyre in the South Atlantic where yeah, the doldrums. Stuff, yeah. stuff accumulates. Yep. And, and we know it accumulates in the Pacific version because they found thousands and thousands of tons of plastic. Right. You know, these are become like the garbage sinks of the world. Well, on Earth, it's because of spiraling water and mm-hmm. ocean currents. In space... It's because of the constant intermixing of the gravitational fields of moving objects create these null points um, in a three-body system. And that's where you can have stuff trapped in Earth-Moon orbit that will stay there for many years and then be ejected again and wander away. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of different from the idea that once in orbit, always in orbit. Mm -hmm. No, these are migrating orbits because... It's kind of like cosmic surfing. You know, if you can imagine hmm. the gravitational fields, which are very weak at those distances from planets and moons, it doesn't take much, you know, like the the pressure of a, of a postage stamp to move an object one way or the other. And then the fields will take over and it'll move into a new orbit, a new trajectory. Hmm. Yeah, I can I can see that. It's like a cosmic dance. Right. You see that when uh, uh, ga- galaxies merge. They do Oh, they dances. much, 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 <laughs> much, 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 bigger scale of time and space. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually quite pretty if you look at it. Oh, they're gorgeous. Yeah. I, I would not want to be in the midst of one. Supposedly, that's what Actually, happened. you'd be perfectly okay. Really? Space is so incredibly... Non-dense distribution of matter in space, particularly in galaxies, is so non-localized that you can have two galaxies actually, you know, collide with each other, mm-hmm. and the stars and the solar systems in those galaxies will not collide. They will get wow. maybe some excess radiation from the gas between the stars, which does collide, and that will raise the background temperature, and in some areas produce probably X-rays and gamma rays and whatever, but the actual process of being in the midst of a galactic collision, unless someone pointed it out, mm-hmm. you probably wouldn't even notice. Wow, that's amazing. Isn't I didn't that, know that astonishing? It is. Well, I thought it was. Okay, so, but did you, have you ever heard that, uh, read that this, our solar system was part of a, uh, what do they call it, a, a Canis Minor? Dwarf galaxy that was absorbed into the Milky Way. Okay, Canis Minor is is you know the antithesis of Canis Major. These are two constellations, yeah, kind of southeast of Orion. Okay, Canis Major is of course the the dog star constellation which has Sirius in it. Canis yeah. Minor has Procyon, and both of these star systems have an A type star which is a bit brighter 
and heavier and hotter than the sun. And they're orbited by a white dwarf, which is a hmm. tiny star with the mass of the sun collapsed to the size of the earth. Yikes. I mean, think of the sun, yeah. 864,000 miles in diameter, shrunk down to 8,000 miles. And the density of yeah, material yeah. goes up, of course, <laughs> as the cube of the reduction of size. So you're talking about a teaspoon. If you can imagine standing on a white dwarf and mm -hmm. dipping a teaspoon into it, and the teaspoon would weigh thousands of tons. Wow. I mean, the numbers are just astronomical. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, in any case, however we got to be, we're, we're obviously, it's still evolving. Okay, now I did, while we were talking, I, I had to look this up because I wanted to find some some definitive answer on this clouds orbiting the Earth. Okay. And this is uh, this is from space, or sciencealert.com in their space section uh, from October of 2018. And it says here, for decades, the existence of weird space clouds in Earth's orbit has been speculative and controversial, but new research has actually validated it. It is real. They called them, and I can't even pronounce this, Kordiluski, Kordiluski clouds. Uh, it's the closest I'm going to get. Two mysterious storms of dust trapped between the competing gravitational fields of the Earth and the Moon. First mm -hmm. hypothesized back in the 50s, and even though the the evidence was pretty slim, but and now they've uh, new new research has actually confirmed it. it. Says that the yep. objects are too very very difficult to find, but yes, they're in the Lagrange five or L five point. Mm. So L five and L four, I would presume. Do you, do you want me to email it or put yeah, it in just, the chat just, just email it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, we had a well, whole we, laundry right. list of of things tonight on the on the, we on, on the well, we will, we will on the scale of earth shaking end of the world class events. So it's uh, ten fifty four my time. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a break at the bottom of the hour. So you've got uh, two or three minutes to tease the next end of the world thingy. We're going to talk about tonight. You mean in my list? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, that's that's interesting because I don't know that I was actually hoping you were going to tell me what the end of the world was. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember when I wrote the promo, I said the end of the world as we know it. Oh, as we know it. Yes. Okay. See, right. and it's already affecting. I mean, I'm I'm watching. I watch a lot of television. Can see you wonders mm -hmm. why I watch television. Well. If you're doing a radio show, you've got to be conversant with what's going on all over the planet and yeah, kind of beyond. So I, I watch, yeah. you know, there's been a new thing introduced into our culture. The coronavirus already has changed the world as we used to know it. And you know what the change is? No. People are no longer shaking hands. And Whoa. they're making a big deal of it in studios where guests or experts are introduced to talk about coronavirus <clears throat> and they'll say things like, oh, well, I would shake your hand, but you know, we, we should really be doing something different now because that's how you spread the virus. No, 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 that's, that's really interesting. Cause the other day I was at a shop here locally doing some things and this person was very helpful, literally spent almost an hour with me taking care of some business and I wanted to shake their hand. And I thought, I thought, no, I better not do, I better not do that. And so what you're saying is it's already in the – like what uh, Sheldrake talked about, the 100th monkey theory. Yep. 
Does nobody get? I didn't get the memo, but <laughs> it's obviously it's already inculcated into my subconscious. Well, it's so wow. ingrained. You meet someone new. What do you do? Shake hands. You shake yeah. hands. Yeah. <clears throat> so, at something so fundamental, but simultaneously so kind of superfluous, mm-hmm. the idea. You know, we're talking about we're in an era where institutions for the last three years have been under attack. Everything from yes. the free press to the judiciary to well, you name it. There isn't an institution that's escaped attack in the last three years. Now we're True. looking at fundamental cultural mores that are under attack because they will better serve our survival. I don't know, I, but I recall that the reason we shake hands is as an old uh, primitive custom to show the other person that you do not have a weapon in your hand. Yeah, and you know how far back that went? Pretty far. To the Middle Ages, as far as I can trace it, you know. Oh, really? It was part of chivalry, knights, and all that kind of thing. You know, remember how they used to reach and they would t- grab each other's forearms? Mm. And the idea was to yeah. see if there was a knife hidden under the <laughs> – that kind of thing. Okay. And then oh, it, okay. it got it got reduced to the polite handshake. So, oh, yeah, that's that's how oh. that evolved. But it really is amazing how something so ingrained—you meet someone new, you know—you mm. come into a new situation, you you shake hands, and this has already caused major change. And what I find interesting is it being promulgated through television shows because where do people get their cues? for how to act socially in a social context. See, but that's what I'm trying to tell you. I don't watch television except rarely for sports. But a lot of people do. Oh, no, I know. But I, I'm telling you, it was already somehow in the back of my brain, It was I was picking up on that the other day. And I did notice it. It's like normally I would have shook, shook, shook this man's hand because he, he was helping me. Mm-hmm. And and uh, But no, I thought better of it. I hope I better not do that. How very interesting. Yeah, so it's obviously in the ethers, and uh, I shall talk about that, the morphogenic uh, fields. Yep. I guess it's a more accurate way of describing how we're all linked up. I told you before, I think it's a cosmic web of light. Hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Robert Stanley, my friend and colleague. We're talking about far-out cosmic things, the end of the world maybe, the end of the world as we know it, the things we're used to, the things we want to get used to, here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. 
As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>